Sometimes the search for faith is a long trip for some people, for they go after so many different things, and they're not sure what they really need or want in life. Yet our God is able to find us wherever we are and encounter us to convict us and to turn us away from our sin. God's in control. I was reading a note the other day that was written from a friend of mine who worked at Delta many years ago. You know, I grew up in South Atlanta, and our nearest neighbors uh, were the original Chick-fil-A, the Dwarf House, and the Delta Hangar, because we hung out there at the jet base. Many of my childhood friends' dads worked either at the jet base or there in the terminal or in flight. And it was an interesting place to grow up and to be around back in the days when you could circumnavigate the, uh, the airport fairly freely. One of the things I've learned in the years of growing up and being around people in, in uh, uh, the airline industry is a good pilot does what it takes to get his passengers home. Right, Tony? Absolutely. And it's important and it's imperative that that is done. Let me give you a good example of this. A friend of mine that, that was in flight for Southern Airways years ago told a story about being on a plane one time. And she said it was a rather raucous group of people. They were headed all for the same destination for a great big party. And they wouldn't be quiet. And she said, we were about to encounter some turbulence. And like all people will do when they've got a rowdy flight, she knew exactly what to say. Debbie, you know exactly what I'm talking about. She got on her little mic there and very politely said, the flight is about to get a little bumpy. For your own safety, please return to your seats. A few did. Most didn't. She got on there a second time, and she, uh, as she used to describe to me, I went to my outdoor voice and she said ladies and gentlemen for your own good return to your seats immediately well realizing that that most of them did but a few didn't uh, the captain got on and he said this now think about this he said this is your captain people have gotten hurt by going to the restroom instead of staying in their seats let's be clear about this my responsibility is to get you through the storm, and it's your responsibility to do what I say. Now sit down and buckle up. One very sheepish, middle-aged, bald-headed man stepped out of the restroom, red-faced, and very quietly moved to his seat. He didn't even know they encountered him there. But that's the way it is with God. He knows what's going on in our lives. He knows what's going on around us. Nothing catches him by surprise. And he wants to communicate to us the directions that will keep us in the way we should go if we will listen. Now here's a question I want to ask you this morning. How far do you want God to go in getting your attention? If you're not listening. If God has to choose between eternal safety and your earthly comfort, which one do you want him to choose? Don't answer too quickly. Think about that. 
because that's what this passage and this message is all about. I want to talk about two, two people this morning, Saul and Stephen. Stephen first. Stephen, as you know, was the first martyr in the Christian church, but he also was a part of the first group of deacons in the church. He was one of those six men that were set apart to help serve the needs uh, that were there that was being overlooked. There were some, some widows in the community that weren't receiving the food they needed, and they were unhappy. And these six deacons were chosen for that purpose. The, the 12 apostles said, this is why we need deacons. And, and right now we have probably the best deacon body I've ever worked with in my life. And they serve, all of them. Some are out there serving right now, watching over us so we can worship safely right here. But here's what's amazing about Stephen. Stephen was, was far more than just a deacon. Stephen, it says, was full of grace and power and performed great miracles among the people. Now, that says a whole lot about him. Stephen wanted to obey God. You know, you've got to make a choice today whether or not you'll obey him or not, whether you'll listen to him when he speaks to you or not. God's goal is not to make you happy. His goal is to make you his God is attempting to conform you to the image of His Son because, after all, that's what you'll be for eternity. If we put off repentance another day, we have a day more to repent of and a day less to repent in. So if you're sitting here today and you're saying, well, I'm thinking about it, but I'll do it later on, remember that time is running out. Saul of Tarsus made a huge U-turn. You know that. I just read that passage. And I, I struggle with that passage sometimes because I don't hear Saul of Tarsus saying, I know I'm a sinner. I realize that I'm going to hell. And I realize Jesus is the only hope for me. Therefore, I accept his gift. That's never said. No, he's standing there and Jesus confronts him face to face. Now, here's the unknown that we know. He spent the next three days praying, and somewhere in the process of those prayers, he got his life right with Jesus. And he understood that he was being called to do something extra special. All of us have that moment when we meet Christ. We have that moment when we realize it's not about them, it's about me. And it's important for us to remember that. For Simon Peter, that moment happened as he was standing in a boat and he was trying to fish and they couldn't catch anything. And Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. And at some point, Simon Peter dropped his net, turned to Jesus and began to walk toward him. And at that moment, he was saved. That was his act of obedience and his demonstration of repentance when he did that. What I'm saying is this, it's not the words you say, but it's what truly you're focused on in your heart as you come to him. There's not a set of words that you must say. Now, I studied EE and CWT and, and uh, Master Life and all the different programs, and, and very often we had certain things we would say to people and ask them to say back to us, but those words did not save anybody. 
It's the posture of your heart as you are facing your lostness that makes the difference. Does that make sense? It's how you realize that you're lost at that moment. And, and Saul of Tarsus understood that. In the middle of wanting to kill followers of the way. And you know, we know that Saul looked at them and he struggled with who they were. He saw something in them that was remarkable. But his bitterness pushed him on in that direction. We all have a decision to make. Every one of us must decide, not only is Jesus going to be our Savior, but will He be our Lord every day? Will we follow Him every day? That is the defining moment in your life and in mine, is the decision we make about that. It's so unusual, you can, you can sum up a person's life in one type column in a paper. If you're a very important person, maybe two columns. If you're very significant on the front page with, with a picture of you, but the next day, it's over with. An entire lifetime is summed up in a matter of words. Someone will stand over your casket or beside your grave, and, and there will be a limited amount of time to describe that. But what you've accomplished in your life that's not known by men but only by God, will determine your eternal destiny. The idea of that sometimes terrifies me. But I am so glad that we've got a Savior that loves us. In 36 AD, Saul of Tarsus believed with all his heart he was doing what was right. He thought that somehow what he was doing would help the cause of God. His only mistake was he got confused with Old Testament prophecy and he didn't understand that Jesus fulfilled every prophecy about the Messiah. He allowed his eyes to be blinded. And amazingly, when he confronted Jesus and he stood there and looked into the face of the risen Lord, the brightness of the glory of God burned his eyes so that he literally had scales over them. Much like the scales that we develop that are called cataracts. He was spiritually blind, but he also was physically blind, and he understood that there was only one person that could open his eyes, and that was Jesus. And Jesus did that. You know, it's amazing to me that God chose someone like Saul you see, Saul had been an important person for a long time. Saul was standing there when they stoned Stephen, part of the first deacons of the church and the first martyr of the church. He stood there and it says they laid their garments, those who were passing judgment on him, stoning him, at the feet of Saul. Now that was no accident and that's not mentioned just simply because it happens much more than that. You see, the one who brought the letters that condemned the individual to be stoned usually held the cloaks or laid the cloaks by his feet of the men that would stone them. So it's obvious that Saul of Tarsus brought the letters of judgment against Stephen. Now Stephen, being like any good person, 
didn't simply stand there and take it. Before he was stoned, he preached a sermon unlike any that's ever been heard before. In chapter 7, that sermon seems to go on and on. And, and he ends by saying this, and I love it. He said, you here, and remember, Saul heard this. He said, are a stiff-necked and unclean people. Now, it's obvious that he had never taken Dale Carnegie's course on how to win friends and influence people. But that didn't go very far. In fact, I think they probably threw the rocks a little harder and a few more just because of that. But the reality is he gave a sermon that was planted in the heart of Saul that never left it. That sermon brought him in that direction. In fact, as Stephen is standing uh, there and looking up out of this, this, this kind of pit that he was in at the people that were about to stone him, he said this as they began. He said, I see the Son of God standing in his glory. Now, that doesn't mean a lot to us. Standing or sitting really wouldn't matter. But to them, it made them very angry because... Anytime a person, whether they were, were civilian or military, ever went into the, the throne room of a king, the king was always seated and they always stood. There was only two times in the instance of ancient times that a king would ever, ever stand before any of his subjects. The first time was when a, a, a soldier was coming back from battle and they had literally won the battle or they had distinguished themselves in some amazing feat and they were being recognized by the king. And the king would stand and generally present them with a tribute of some sort. Or when a warrior was coming back and had died in battle, they would bring the body draped in the colors of the king and the king would stand in honor and recognition of that person who had died those are the only two times that a king would stand I can truly tell you that Jesus was standing in heaven and allowed Stephen to see it because he understood he was honoring him for being a great warrior and dying a death that would be acceptable by God. I don't think Saul ever got over that. Saul was, was trained by the, one of the greatest Greek scholars that ever lived, Gamaliel. He served on the Sanhedrin. He was an educator. He, he knew Greek and Hebrew very well. He was one who judged the people of Israel. Saul was a significant person. He wasn't just a fisherman like Simon Peter. Saul was probably about five years younger than Jesus. But he was aware of who Jesus was and when he died. He knew all about him. I want to think for a while about Simon Peter's life that was wonderful. But I want to think about Saul of Tarsus' life up against his, who was spectacular. Because Saul of Tarsus even got his name changed, Paul. We know him as the Apostle Paul. And I want to think about what 
happened there in that conversion. And I want to consider what God is saying to us about our lives. There are three things here I believe that we can learn from this radical repentance that he experienced. The first thing is this. We all have a past. Everyone in this room has a past. We all have secrets that we would rather remain secret. Yet we know that God knows who and what we are. He's not mystified about that. He, you know, remember when you were a little kid and you, you wanted to get away with something so you'd go and get in the dark? Maybe if you were building a fire outside. My brother and I were, we were pyromaniacs early in life. We loved to start fires. It got so bad that my mother finally learned that she had to hide the matches from us. We had those big boxes of kitchen matches that are, were, and, and we had the fancy blue tip ones, the ones you could stand on the side of a brick and thump them and they catch fire. Oh, those were wonderful. We burned up more leaves in our yard, sent the uh, fire department to our house so many times, it was unbelievable. But it was fun. But we knew if we got out in the dark and started doing it, eventually, you know, we could get away with it for a while. Scripture says men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil, and that's true. But God sees beyond the darkness. He sees the darkness in our hearts. He knows that we have a, a past. He understands what we've done. Saul was a man who was devoted to destroying the people of the way. That was the term that they used for Christians then. He believed they were evil. He believed they were working against everything that God stood for. You might say this. He was, I was talking to somebody earlier and bragging about a, a, a person from years ago we're not so proud of in Georgia. Uh, Jeff, remember who Roy Regals was? Wrong way Roy. One of the early football players at Georgia Tech. And he was a remarkable player. The only problem, he lost his direction. He... he got a ball out of a fumble, and he ran a touchdown for the other team. He never lived it down till he died. They, they called him Wrong Way Roy. In fact, uh, his grandson told me that, that in his study on the bookshelf, he had his granddaddy collected, of all things, compasses. And the reason he collected them was everybody gave him a compass so he'd kind of know which way was which because he'd gotten confused. Saul of Tarsus was a little bit like Wrong Way Roy. He's very dedicated and focused. The only problem is he's going the wrong way. And that's all he needed was to confront the living Christ and suddenly everything changed for him. I'm glad that God loved him enough to turn him around because each and every one of us are given the offer to turn around. The second thing I want you to realize is this. Every person has a purpose. God doesn't create anybody just to fill in the background. We all have a purpose and a reason. God knows us individually. He knows everything about us. And in spite of all the things that we may do from our past, He loves us. He has a way of, of seeing that potential in us, and He never gives up on us as long as there's breath in our body. And it scares me sometimes when, when we forget that. See, Saul of Tarsus was the persecutor who became the persecuted. But never once does he ever say, I wish I could go back to where I used to be. He never says that. 
He is absolutely and totally focused on what he has done. He talks about how he suffered. It says that Paul was beaten with rods three times. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked three times in constant danger. Five times he was beaten with 39 lashes and placed in prison repeatedly. You know what he said? He said, when I'm weak, he's strong. He said, it's my privilege to stand where I stand. There's no other place I would rather be than here. Now think about that. Think about that kind of devotion and dedication. The reality is God had a purpose for him beyond anything that anybody could imagine. This Jew carried the gospel to the Gentile world. Amazingly, he started out torturing and killing Jews that had gone after Jesus, and now... He is going after Gentiles to bring them to Christ, pagans in in every right, bringing them back, and he's willing to be persecuted for that cause. Talk about a confusing life. He had one, but the reality is once he met the risen Christ, everything changed. Now this man who caused so many others to suffer would now suffer for the cause of Christ. And he never backed down, and he never looked back. He said, I will boast about how weak I am because I know my strength is in Christ Jesus. But lastly, we are called by God to do what he has for us to do. It's not our decision. We get very little to say about that. When he he touches us and he has a call upon us, we must be willing to say yes. Some accept this new life. Most do not. Some say, Lord, I'll begin with you, and they never finish. The Old Testament, it says, don't celebrate the person that puts his armor on, but the one that takes it off, meaning not everybody will finish what they begin. This sounds harsh, but the reality is we are called to serve him and be obedient all of our life. Jesus said there are two gates and two pathways. One is, one is wide and easy to walk, walk down. It's, it's, it's got a smooth slope and everything's fine. And it leads to destruction. But there's another that's very narrow. And it travels up a hill. And it's not comfortable or easy. But the narrow way is the way to God. Not that that trip will get you into heaven, but that trip demonstrates that heaven is on your heart. And it's what you're called to do. And that's why it's important not only to accept Christ as your Savior and Lord, but to obediently follow Him all your life. We've got to be people like that. God has chosen you to serve. That's what you're about. Now, you may have a profession or career. You may uh, be involved in a lot of different activities. That's fine. But don't neglect or escape the reality that God has called you to something that's much greater than you could ever imagine. God has chosen you to serve. He has called you. And there's a purpose in your life that is so real. You can be evasive for a while, but eventually you've got to admit, I'm in rebellion if I don't say yes. In his book, I Surrender, Patrick Morley writes that the church's integrity problem is in the misconception 
that we can add Christ to our lives and not subtract sin. Think about that. That we can add Christ to our lives and not subtract our sin. You see, the problem is a lot of people want to, as they would draw up their resume, enlist their activities in, in, in community functions and activities, and one of them be church member and Christian. No. Christianity is not a familial relationship with a group of people in a congregation. Christianity is a relationship with your Savior. And you immediately say, Savior, what have I been saved from? You've been saved from your own sin. And until you admit that you're a sinner, you cannot have a relationship with Christ. He has one thing to say to you. Repent. And until you do, the relationship will never have the depth that it should have. It is a change in belief that some people have without a change in behavior. Do you know what I mean? You know they're a Christian and you know they're a churchgoer because you see them coming and going out of the church, but you've not witnessed a change in their life. And that's more important than anything. Show me a person who can change their life realistically and not encounter a life-changing experience with Christ. I'd like to see them. I, I never have in 62 years ever witnessed anybody that could go through that. I've seen people try to have self-control and, and try to make their own decision to change. I've seen them go through, through self-help programs and such as that, and, and they may take the edge off of some of their problems, but if you truly want deep-down change in your life, there's only one way. That's when you admit your sin or confess your sins and embrace the living Christ. You cannot have revival without reformation. You must reform your life. You've got to have repentance. Of course, everybody would like to, as a teenager, have a career without going to college. That'd be great. I know people that go to college and they want to have a career, but they were so out of focus in college that they didn't even prepare. See, that's the mystery to a lot of people. They think if they have the piece of paper, they can do what they want to do. The reality is, it's not the paper that makes the difference. It's what's within you. Because remember, once you finish college, they still test you. They want to find out the quotient of what you have learned. Has it seeped into your heart and has it changed who you are? I know many people that have the degrees. They have the credentials. But it does not go beyond there concerning their career. It's the same in a relationship with Christ. If you name the name of Christ, if you dress the right way and do all that, you'll look good for a while. But when the storm comes and the true test is there, that's when you fall apart. Because if Jesus is not in your heart, if the Holy Spirit is not going with you through this life, the storms will not just upset you. They will identify the shallowness of your walk. Be a person who's prepared to be faithful. Because after all, 
It's not my life that you're wasting, it's yours. And God gave you a beautiful life for a reason. He wants you to use it to build his kingdom and to prepare your way into eternity. I buried a lot of people this summer. And it's stressful as a pastor to do that because I have inroads into the life of so many people that you don't have. I've been there through the celebrations and the sadnesses of life. I know the, the personal situations and the struggles that have been insurmountable. And I've watched that life in a very personal way, traveling, and then suddenly they step into eternity. I've stood over hospital beds and I've had post-octogenarians. That's a, that's a nice term to use, but it means anybody over 80. I've had them tell me, I've got so much more to do in life and I just feel frustrated that I haven't finished everything that I want to do. Where do you stand on that? Have you completed what you want to complete in life? Have you accomplished everything that you committed to do for Jesus in this world? That's a good question to ask. Saul of Tarsus, as he drew to the, the end of his life, and you know, of the, of, the, of the disciples, which he was not one of, he was a, an apostle added after the fact, but of the apostles that, that, that lived out their life, every one of them died a martyr's death but one, John. And John died sometime right after he wrote the revelation of John on the Isle of Patmos. And he apparently died a peaceful death. All others were martyred, even Simon Peter. Simon Peter, when they were preparing as an old man to crucify him, said this. He said, please do not crucify me as my Lord was crucified. Crucify me upside down because I do not deserve to die as he died. For he was holy and I am sinful. Wow. What a testimony. Where are you? in your walk with God what are you doing is there something you need to complete only you know what the Holy Spirit is communicating to you and and I pray that you will answer the Holy Spirit's call with an affirmative a yes to be to be obedient to obey to follow God even now let us pray Father, I thank you that in your holy word, you give us directions. You don't confuse us. There's no doublespeak. It's all very plain. And I pray that right now we would search our heart of hearts and that we would be obedient to what you are calling us to, even in this moment. For truly, the greatest call that you ever issue to us is one to come to you. There will be times you'll send us other places, but you're calling us to you. And I pray that even now, on this holiday weekend, that those here would hear your voice and say yes. Father, speak to someone in this time of decision. And I pray that you would have your way in their hearts and they would obey your call to them. For we pray this in your holy name, Lord. Amen.